test and you don't know what's happening now, um, this is the deeper waters portion of our service. And so it's like a Sunday school lesson, but we, we, we try to go deeper than what you might hear in your normal or average Sunday school lesson. And uh, so today we're starting a series called The Seven Sayings of Jesus on the Cross. And um, the, first two ser- the first two weeks are going to be foundational mainly. And then we're going to be going deeper into what Jesus actually said. And some of the sayings that were prophetic, um, a lot of the sayings look back into some things that happened in the Old Testament that led up to the cross. And uh, we're going to be discussing that for the next several weeks. So today, this specific title is called The Shadow of the Cross. And I want to take my text from two different places. The first one is from 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to be reading verses 19 and 20. And then we're going to go to the book of Revelation in 13 and 8. 1 Peter 1 and verse 19 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest or revealed in these last times for you. And then Revelation 13 and 8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, Revelation 13 is talking about how there's going to come a darkness that's going to come upon the world. You may not believe it, but if you don't believe it, it's just because you're not paying attention. And with all due respect, it's happening already. Eventually, there's going to be a one-world government and a one-world religion, and it's going to be a religion of tolerance. And, uh, you know, you worship what you want, and I worship what I want. That's nothing new. That's been going around since the dawn of time. And, uh, you know, you can find that in the book of Acts where Paul went to Mars Hill. And he said, you know, to the unknown God. You know, they had this, the Greeks and the Romans had thousands of gods. So in case they missed one, they named a statue and a little altar to the unknown God. That's in case we missed one, we're going to worship at that altar. And, and the idea was, you know, as long as you don't claim that there's only one God in one way, then, then you're good and I'm good and we're all good and it doesn't matter. As long as, as, long as you're good, then you're going to make it to heaven or whatever you believe the afterlife is. And Jesus came along and he said, Buddha said that way and Muhammad said this way. And Jesus said, I am the way. And there's no other way to go. And so, uh, so that's the context of Revelation 13 and 8 is that there will be an Antichrist that will come and, and they will worship him whose names are not written in the Lamb Book of Life. But what I want to focus on in Revelation 13 and 8 is the latter part of that, which says the Lamb was slain before or from the laying of the world's foundation. The cross is central to everything in the Bible. Everybody say everything. I hope that after this lesson, you'll get a little deeper glimpse into what I mean when I say that. Everything from the very first verse of Genesis 1, all the way through when, when, uh, through until the end of the book of Revelation when he said, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen, is about the cross. The cross is everything. It's written into every page, every story, every verse, if we only had revelation to see it and understanding. The Old Testament, for example, promises redemption through the cross and points to a time When there would be a cross. The New Testament tells of redemption through the cross and points back to it. And even today, we cannot preach on anything, any of the central themes that we have. 
we cannot preach on them without at least, or, or without, like if we look at every message from a strictly theological lens, then everything that we preach boils down to the cross as its foundation. For example, if we preach repentance, well, why can we repent? Because he died on the cross. If we preach salvation, well, how can we be saved? Through the cross. If we preach holiness, how can we be holy? Through the blood of the cross. If we preach victory or healing, how do we get our victory and healing? Through the cross. Literally everything that we preach is through the cross. And has the cross as its foundation. And when I say cross, of course, we understand he's not dead anymore. He's, he's resurrected, he's risen. But even the resurrection looks back to the cross. And, the, and you, you could make an argument that the cross looks forward to the resurrection. Of course, that's true. That's the whole gospel. But for in the very dawn of time, God spoke the earth into existence before he created the heavens or the universe, the stars, the moon, etc. Before that, he created the angels who witnessed creation. And according to the book of Job, when, when the angels witnessed creation, they sang for joy. Wouldn't that be amazing to have been there? When the angels of God who were created when there was nothing but blackness, whenever the angels were created and they saw all this happening and they sang for joy. And before that, there was, there was nothing that is before the angels were created. There was absolutely nothing but the blackest of darkness. No matter, there was nothing that existed and only God alone to dwell in it. Before there was time, even God hatched a plan of redemption and started creation from that perspective. And that's what it means when he says the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. You see, the first thought that God had in mind was not beautiful flowers and gorgeous trees and incredible sunsets and sunrises. He didn't think about America or the day you or I were born. Or the day the Chiefs would win their second Super Bowl in a row. That's faith. <laughs> he didn't think about any of that. I don't think God cares about the football game. I'm just saying we do, but I'm pretty sure he does. <laughs> There's that. They had to sneak that in somehow. But before God created any of that, the first thought that he had in mind was redemption. Before even the very knowledge that man would even need a savior. God said, I am going to be a savior. God created everything with the cross in mind. Man was created with full knowledge that he would fall from grace. And the earth was created in perfect beauty with perfect knowledge that its perfectness would be marred by the curse of man's disobedience. As beautiful as we see the creation now, it's marred compared to what it once was. Before all of that happened, God decreed and chose the cross as his method of redemption. And we have to ask, why a bloody cross when it could have been anything? And the only answer that I can come up with is when John said this, we love him because he first loved us. Why a bloody cross? Because that would be the only perfect way to show man the depth to which God would stoop to reach and redeem man back to himself and to show him his love. Then the Bible says that God, you know, that of course the Bible does say God is holy, but it says it means that holiness is an attribute or character of God. 
You know, God is, God is just, but justice is an attribute of God. But the New Testament states emphatically that God is love. Before he's anything else, he is love. That means all the other attributes flow out of that. That's at the core of his nature. And so a lamb was slain before the foundation of the world in the mind and the plan of God. As John the Revelator saw it, when all chaos was breaking loose around him and he was seeing all these things happening in Revelation, he said, I saw a lamb as it had been slain. From John 5 and 39, Jesus said this, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and there they which testify of me. Now, whenever he said, search the scriptures, we understand that he meant search through the Old Testament or through the law and prophets, the Psalms, uh, the historical books. And whenever you read the, you know, the Old Testament, the key to understanding and opening up its wisdom is to read it with the cross in mind. Now, many times people don't do that, and we just read over things, and we miss the deeper revelation. Now, the word can speak to us in a lot of ways, but we often miss a deeper, more prophetic revelation of the scriptures because we don't read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. But Jesus said, search those scriptures. Seek for me in them because they testify of me. And he wasn't just saying, well, they testify of my person, but he meant they testify of why I'm going to come. He's the offering of Isaac on Abraham's altar. He's the serpent that, of brass that was lifted up in the wilderness by Moses. That, that serpent of brass Brass symbolizes judgment and how the brass overlaid with wood and how Jesus was human and he took on our judgment. He's the Passover lamb that was roasted and slain and eaten in Egypt in order to escape that death angel. He's the scarlet thread Rahab tied around her house door to protect her from the attack and onslaught of the enemy in order to weave her way into the lineage of Messiah. He's every Old Testament sacrifice, every drop of blood that was ever shed under the Old Testament for sins and transgressions. He's in the Red Sea crossing by Israel whenever that Red Sea came crashing down on Pharaoh and all of his armies. And God said, this is the day you're delivered. Aren't you glad there's a Red Sea of blood to pass through today? He's in the rock that followed Moses and Israel, that was smitten by Moses so that water could come out and save an entire nation. Aren't you glad that the rock was smitten and water literally flowed from his side, blood and water? He's in the rod that budded for Aaron to spring forth a new life. He's in the wood that was thrown into that bitter waters of Merah in order to make it sweet. The cross makes the bitter life sweet. He's in the axe head that fell into the Jordan River, which when the prophet Elisha retrieved it by throwing a stick into the water, the axe would have came up counterclockwise to the axe, thus making a sign of the cross, symbolizing how restoration truly comes, no matter how lost your life can be. There is a cross that can restore it. 
He's literally in the encampment of Israel around the tabernacle and how, uh, uh, how, how the 12 tribes were formulated and, and with the tabernacle in the middle and, and it would have formed a perfect cross. He's in the story of Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. He's in how Jacob blessed his grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh upon his deathbed when, whenever the eldest should have gotten that right-hand blessing, but instead Jacob crossed his hands, and the one that didn't deserve it got the blessing. Aren't you glad for a cross that gives us something that we never deserved? He's in the rod of Moses, which turned the water into blood. He's in the tree of life in the garden of Eden, which pointed to the only way to live forever. He's in the substitution of Judah for Benjamin in the story of Joseph. And now Christ, as a descendant of Judah, took our place and became our substitute. He's in the killing of the firstborn in Egypt in the days of Moses. And how Christ, as the firstborn among many brethren, would come and die for the sins of mankind. He's in every piece of wood, brass, silver, and gold. Every curtain, every fastening, every tent peg in the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. He's in every feast day spelled out in Leviticus, all seven of them, and especially in the Day of Atonement, the most holiest day of all. He's in every Psalms, all 150 of them, especially those Psalms like Psalms 32, I think it's verse 5, where David said, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And we get to the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews says remission of sins could never have come from the cross. So what David was doing was he was not talking about remission of sins that came under the law. He was prophesying about how remission of sins would come through the cross. He's in uh, that flaming sword that kept the way of the tree of life so that Adam and Eve could not go back in and eat of that tree of life after they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and thus live forever and thus be stuck in a day uh, or in a, a continuous state where they would never die and would continually be separated from God because Messiah had to come to die. But if the human race lives forever, then we're stuck being eternally sinful. So even in the most strictest ways of judgment, we can see that there is a cross that is written there. The Old Testament is literally under the shadow of the cross because it foreshadowed it. When we read through the Old Testament, the key to coming to a deeper understanding, every verse, every story, is to look at it in, in light of the cross and how it points to it. It might talk about why he needed to come to the cross or why he came to the cross or how he came to the cross or just symbolized blood in some way or a wood or cross in some way. When you, and, and when we get to, to Isaiah 53, and Isaiah said it like this, He is despised and rejected of men. Of man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He's talking about it as if it already had happened. Even though it was several hundred years yet into the future. He was bruised. For our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so openeth he not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, who shall declare his generation. He was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is the most epic description of what happened and what would happen from Isaiah's perspective whenever Messiah would come and die on the cross because the Old Testament is under the shadow of the cross. But one of the most chilling passages I've ever read is found in the book of John chapter 19. And it says this, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified him, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. And now the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout. They said, Therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. For you see, while the eternal God, who spoke the world into existence, hung mercilessly on a wooden cross, fashioned by his own hands, bloodied and bruised and beaten, so close were these Roman soldiers to the cross that they likely had blood spatter on them from the Son of God. Carried on as if it was just another common thief being hung. And took the only thing that Jesus in his earthly ministry ever physically owned. A garment that his mother had made for him. And they cast lots for the garment of the Son of God. With his mother standing right there within eyesight. And we judge. How could they be so calloused? But before we are too quick to judge, let us remember Romans 5 and 8. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Just like those Roman soldiers, he still died for us. When we didn't care about him, he cared about us. When we behaved just like those Roman soldiers, Christ came and died for us. And showed us how much he loves us. Many are living today in the shadow of the cross. The shadow in the sense of it's a hidden mystery to them. When you read 1 Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter 2. I just read it this morning. And it says that it's talking about the, that the cross was the hidden wisdom of God. And we can see now, looking back on it, how the, as I went through just a few stories, the, the entire Old Testament is about the cross. Right there from Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But before heaven and earth, he created the cross. That thought plan was in his mind. You can read how light came out of darkness. And, and, and 1 Corinthians says that the light of God hath shined in our hearts. Can you see that, that correlation there? It's all throughout the Old Testament how it pointed to the cross. And yet, it was a hidden mystery because the hidden wisdom of God only comes by revelation. And had they known it, had the wisdom of God been unveiled, they would not have done what they did. So God did not allow the veil to be taken from their eyes until the day of Pentecost. With the preaching of the word of God. 
And that was the offense. That was the thing that offended them. To the Jews, the thought uh, of, that is, of that Messiah would need to come and die was so preposterous and so alarming. They cannot believe that a Messiah would ever do that, even to this very day. And to the Greeks in Paul's day, and in many ways still today, that God would redeem man in such a simple but painful way is overly simplistic and flat-out silly. But without the cross, there's no resurrection. There's no day of Pentecost. There's no church. There's no salvation for the Gentiles. There's no mercy poured out on mankind. There's no you and there's no me. And there's no hope for this world. There's no refuge, church, and liberty from In Liberty, Missouri, there's no hope for mankind. There's no Holy Ghost being poured out. There's no joy in your spirit. There's no bounce in your step. There's depression and anger and anxiety and depression. We're all lost and living in an empty life with no hope without the cross. As I close, it reminds me of an old, old song we used to sing many years ago. And you can stand to this. And the song just says, and we're not going to sing this, it's not on the list today, but it, it just, the song just says, at Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Yes. And he goes on, he says, mercy there was great and grace was free, pardon there was multiplied to me there my burden so found liberty at Calvary. By God's words at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. And the last verse goes like this. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span. At Calvary, mercy, there was great and grace was free. Pardon, there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Aren't you grateful for the cross today? Let's lift our hands today. No matter how deep in sin you might be, there is hope because of the cross.